Welcome back to KSCJ Radio, 1360 AM, 94.9 FM in Sioux City, Iowa. I'm Brian Vakulskis, and this is Having Read That, conversations with authors about their books. And I'm joined by Nick Petrie, who is the national best-selling author of the brand-new novel, The Price You Pay. It's the brand-new Peter Ash novel. It's number eight in the series, and I'm happy to say that we've had Nick on to promote each one of these books as they come out, the first one being The Drifter. God, it seems like uh, yesterday, but it was probably eight or nine years ago. So, Nick, uh, this new book, uh, The Price You Pay, the title itself suggests that a past life is coming back to bite someone in the rear end, and... Peter Ash is involved again. Can you just give me the little uh, sh- uh, short elevator pitch of it? Because I don't want to give anything away. Sure. Um, so Peter's best friend, Lewis, who is, is often the guy who shows up when, when uh, Peter gets into trouble uh, deeper than he can handle himself. Um, in The Price You Pay, Lewis is the one who gets in trouble, and Peter is the one who comes to his aid. Uh, Lewis's old uh, criminal crew, Lewis is a eh, semi-retired, let's say, uh, career criminal. His, one of his old buddies gets in trouble, and it turns out that uh, he's been uh, writing down all of the jobs that the crew did back in the day, uh, and someone has gotten wind of this and has stolen these notebooks, which now puts Lewis's life and Lewis's new family uh, at risk, and with him, of course, Peter and Peter's girlfriend, June. This is one of these books that's it re, it's a thriller, and I mean, it's one of those things, short chapters, the action never stops. One of the things that was the, the hook at the beginning of the series was that uh, Peter Ash had this PTSD, it was claustrophobia, and it metastasized itself by having this white static. That's kind of gone away in the books, and so eight books in, was that always sort of the story arc to have that part of his characteristics go away? Uh, I think you're giving me far too much credit for having a, a planned out eight book uh, story art. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. When I, that first book I never really thought would get published, and I, I was just writing it to kind of get it out of my head. Um, and, and I realized quickly that, um, you, know, you know, Peter couldn't just sort of get better because if you're a combat vet and you've got post traumatic stress, it, it just it never goes away. What you can do is learn to mitigate the symptoms. You can learn to manage them. You can learn to, and, and, you know, Peter always uh, says, you know, hello, old friend, when it sort of flares back up. You can change your relationship to it. And so in, in the series, you know, each book from the beginning sort of charts Peter's relationship with his post-traumatic stress and the things that he does to mitigate that. And, and in part, it's because I wanted to... Uh, sort of be a model for for other veterans who have th- you know this problem in their real lives, um, and, and and veterans are um, not super prone to ask for help. Um, the, the the culture, the military culture, is to be tough and to suck it up and to you know you know be strong and, and deal with it yourself. And and that's when you're in combat, you know that that you have to do that. Um, but when you're home. Uh, you, know, you you need to ask for help because it's not something people can really fix in isolation. So I wanted to sort of show that that path. And, and, and Peter was getting better for those first uh, four books, and then he had a relapse, which is also something that happens uh, with post-traumatic stress. And then and that book, which was The, the Wild One Sit in Iceland, where Peter really hits a new kind of bottom and then finds his way out. And then after that, um, there's been sort of a steady state of, you know, we, you know, the war lives in Peter like it lives in anybody who, who's been through something like that. Um, but it's just become part of his, his 
personality in a way, uh, rather than something you have to fight with every day. I'm going to harken back to a word from grade school phonics, onomatopoeia, and that's one of the things I always love in your books is the way you use words to describe a particular sound. And one completely stood out to me in your book here, and I actually wrote it down. You described there's a scene where uh, I think it was a hammer of something hit the back of a bone, and it says the crack of the metal against the bone sounded like two pool balls colliding. I never put those two sounds together, and I don't think I've ever heard metal hitting a bone in real life, but the idea that that could sound like two pool balls colliding, do you know where that came from? Because that that seems so out of the realm of of, uh, of possibilities for something that would come to a person's mind. Well, I really appreciate that you, A, noticed it, uh, and B, brought it up, um, because I'm not sure I've ever heard the sound of metal hitting bone either, but I've heard plenty of pool balls crack. <laughs> and that's a real distinct sound that pretty much everybody can, can call to mind. So I was trying to find a sound that had that visceral, sharp nature to it. Um, but the, you know, the, the thing about these books, and I think what makes my work a little different from, from others who write you know, thrillers, is that I am really interested in language, and I am really interested in character and in how um, it's not just what is the story, but how is the story told and who are the characters and, and, and getting you to really care for them. Um, because a story isn't super exciting if you don't really care if the hero gets killed. Um, and the, the, the fun thing about these books is I get all of this stuff on social media from readers who, uh, you know, oh, I can't believe you did that to Peter Ash. Uh, or, you know, they get all indignant about how hard I make his life. Uh, which is great because it means that they care about what happens to him. Well, there is a certain aspect of the books that we see people who we would consider killers in the book. We find ourselves rooting for them. And uh, as the writer, do you have to take pains to make people who are ruthless killers to, but, necess- but maybe have a certain code that uh, makes people root for somebody that's actually doing harm to somebody else? Well, that was actually the... I think the biggest struggle for me in this book was diving into Lewis's backstory and realizing, um, you know, his motives may have been uh, somewhat good, but that that Lewis had done a lot of bad stuff. Um, and how do I how do I show that without making people, you know, lose sympathy for him? So it is it is something I think about it. It's not I don't think it's that hard for Peter because Peter is such an essentially decent character, and you can see it, uh, you know, kind of in everything he does. You know, he introduces himself, he calls people ma'am. I mean, he is just a, um, that's just kind of who he is. But Lewis has always been a little mysterious. And, and uh, you know, Peter always calls Lewis the most dangerous man he's ever met. Um, and so with a book where I dive so much more deeply into Lewis's past and Lewis's uh, internal life. We get a lot more of Lewis in this book um, that, than I've given in any other book. Um, you know, I, I really thought a lot about that, and and that's why I that's why I gave Lewis this code, like that you 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 you, you know you do these things, but you have rules for it, um, which is a, you know sort of a reflection of of that. There are rules of engagement for for every situation. Um, there are things you you are allowed to do and you are not allowed to do it. And some of Lewis's crew uh, are, are in line with that. And some, you know, are sort of like, yeah, well, whatever. 
Um, so, you know, and, and that's another way to sort of show where Lewis stands on this spectrum of uh, people who really are just ruthless killers and don't have anything else inside them. Uh, and somebody like Lewis, who has found this new life, he's, he's fallen in love, um, he's got these, he, the, the woman he's married has these two kids, that he's crazy about these kids. Um, so, you know, people evolve, people change. Um, so I'm interested in the idea that people are not just one thing. I'm chatting with Nick Petrie about his brand new novel, Peter Ash. It's the eighth in the series, uh, the, the Peter Ash novel. The book is The Price You Pay. It's uh, available everywhere. I know you came from a background that you would do home inspections and construction work, and that's a very uh, finite thing. I mean, pe- measurements are either right or wrong. When you, when you look at a home inspection, things are either done right or wrong. Writing isn't like that. Writing, you have to, I mean, there's, there, you can change it all the time. But do you still have doubts eight books in when you submit a manuscript? Or does that doubt ever go away, but it's not perfect? Oh, my God. No, the doubt never goes away. Um, the, the doubt, you know, I think one of the essential tools for being a, a professional writer, a, a professional novelist anyway, is that you have to learn to reckon with the doubt and uncertainty every single day. Um, because you don't know, there is no, you know, I don't, I don't start with an outline. I start with a situation and kind of write forward from there. Um, you know, I'm, I am winging it every minute of every day. Uh, and, you know, that here, it, it absolutely is part of it. I, I was once um, in an elevator with Harlan Coben. This is my, my brush with Harlan Coben. Um, and I was really struggling with my third book. And I said, just please tell me it gets easier and he, he just skewered me with this look, and he said, not if you're doing it right. <laughs> and, like, I, I carry that every day. I think about that every day. It's like, this is not meant to be easy. This is meant to be a challenge, and it's meant to be, uh, you know, kind of a fraught thing. Uh, and I, you know, the, the, the time between when I send the book to my editor and when I hear back from my editor is the, is the worst part of being a writer because I'm, I'm you know, it's a black box. Um, so, yes, the, the doubt and uncertainty is always there. And, you know, I have I know that certain writers have muses, and Lamott's book, Bird by Bird, seems to be a muse that kind of gets people back on track. Have you ever used that technique? Oh, I love that book. Um, yeah, you know, I, I have a whole bunch of those writing books, and I don't, I'm not at a point where I'm really learning anything from them, but they are really great company. Um you know, it's, it's, you know, I, I have a, a network of writer friends who I will just pick up the phone and call, and we will talk about kind of what we're working on and what the challenges are. And, um, you know, I, a book like Bird by Bird is just like one of those phone calls, except you don't have to be personal friends with Anne Lamott. Um, you, uh, there's a great book um, about writing nonfiction by a guy named John McPhee, who is sort of one of the uh, kind of world's greatest um, essayists. Um, called Draft Number Four, and it's all about he's he's I think he's in his mid eighties now, um, but so he's he's written for uh, you know Time Magazine and the New Yorker, and he's written I don't know twenty five books or something, and it's this it's this wonderful look at his look back on the writing life, and it is it's you know if you're someone who is 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 not eighty three, you know I'm in my fifties and I'm still trying to uh, you know sort of. Uh, you know, stretch myself and learn something new every day. Uh, all those books are so inspirational because you get to you get to uh, 
uh, you know, share some time with the writer and hear what they're thinking. And it, it, it provides a lot of comfort and inspiration. Is there competition among writers, or is it just the opposite, that you want everybody to write good books because that gets more people reading? How does that play into this? You know, I think some people really feel like there's a competition. Like, if so-and-so's book does well, that there are fewer readers for my book. Um, in the crime fiction community, that's really rare. Uh, I think in literary fiction, it's a little more dog-eat-dog. Uh, -dog. I've heard that the romance writers community is really quite um, uh, competitive. But crime writers, in, in my experience, are super generous people. Um, and I, you know, I talk to, to people who I met once at a conference for five minutes, um, and they are very generous with their time. And then they give me their email address. And if you have a question, you know, just, um, you know, when I was starting out, you know, that was my, that was my kind of way to dive into this world. Um, and and I'm, I'm always, you know, if I read a good book, I, I, I post on my socials, I put it in my newsletter, because I want good fiction to shine, and I want good writers to be able to keep writing. Um, so I, it, is a, it is a really nice and supportive community, and they're just fun people. They're, you know, crime writers are a, are a quirky bunch, um, and it's, a, it's an interesting group of people. There's a scene in the book that Peter's uh, partner, June Cassidy, his lover, she has a conversation with one of her cop uh, sources. Is the, the interaction there with the cop source, with reporter and cop, kind of the same it is with crime writer and cop? You know, I, it's funny. There are cops who, you know, I've tried to have those conversations, um, and some guys just are not interested. Um, and but some guys, I don't know. You, you probably know how this is in your professional life. People love to talk about what they do. Um, so once you get past this initial uh, sort of distrust or feeling that I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna steal their story or I'm gonna make cops look bad or, um, and, and I, I mean, I think being a cop is a really hard thing to do. And I think most cops are trying really hard to do the right thing. Um, so I, I'm I'm very sympathetic to that. Um, but, you know, some people are more talkative than others, and you just have to find the ones who are willing to share, uh, you know, kind of the, you know, what, what, they, what they've seen or what they've been through. And I've been super lucky to, to talk to some folks in law enforcement who um, <laughs> are, are both hilarious and, you know, great conversationalists. I think detectives especially have to be talkers because that's a huge piece of that job. Um, so I, 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 know, I, I, really, I really like and get along with cops. All right. Well, the book is The Price You Pay. It's the latest Peter Ash novel. It's number eight. If you're not familiar with the series, you don't have to read them in order, but you won't regret reading them in order or reading all of them. Uh, he's Nick Petrie, and it's going to be another great book uh, for you to enjoy this winter. Nick, always fun to talk to you, and thanks for joining me again. Likewise, Brian. I really appreciate the conversation. Thanks so much. This has been Having Read That on KSCJ Radio. I'm Brian Vakalskis. Check out all of our episodes on our website, kscj.com, and subscribe to our iTunes podcasts. Thanks to music historian Molly Jolly and segment producer John Weasler. We will be back next time.